In the Bible, the 11th chapter of Hebrews is known as the Faith Hall of Fame. And there the author parades a list of men and women who, throughout the ages, they trusted God in the hardest of times. And these men and women serve as heroes in the faith for their great deeds of trust. But what's very interesting about this list of heroes of the faith They all did great things for the Lord out of their faith in God, but they all, at one point or another, blew it big time and fell into sin. And for most of them, their their greatest sins were those of the tongue. So Abraham lies to Abimelech about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. Sarah laughs and mocks when God promises uh, promises her a son in her old age. Jacob lies and deceives his father Isaac to steal the blessing from his brother. And Jacob's 11 sons cut down their brother Joseph with words of hatred before they sell him into slavery. The list goes on. We could add to this that the Exodus generation, who was not righteous, they were known for countless sins of the tongue, grumbling, complaining, gossip, blasphemy. Later, the first king of Israel, Saul, blamed the people for his own sin. The second king wasn't a lot better who committed adultery and then lied to cover that up. He went on to use deceit to bring about Uriah's death as well. The the list goes on and even heroes of the faith, great men and women of God throughout the ages, they've done great things for the Lord, but they've all, without exception, sinned. And and most of those sins we, we see just were of the tongue. It has to be remembered that even those who lived by and large righteous lives were still sinners. And the one area that seemed to escape control was speech. Even the great apostle Peter, that the chief disciple of the Lord, at one point vehemently denied knowing the Lord, even cursing. You can similarly think of the godliest person you know today and You know, 10 out of 10 times it will hold true that they still stumble in speech. This is the elusive and treacherous power of the tongue. I can make such claims on good authority too, because this message simply comes from James himself, the brother of the Lord. We find it in James chapter 3, and so you can turn there now in your Bible. It's James chapter 3. Here we're finding how James transitions from a very well-known passage on faith and works in chapter 2 to an equally well-known passage on the tongue in chapter 3. What does James have to say about the tongue here in James 3? Well, he's obviously not talking about the, the actual organ in your mouth. He's talking about human speech, how we use our words. And God has given us a great endowment, the gift of speech which is part of being made in his image. And he meant for us to use that gift for good, for glory, for praise, for worship. But ever since the fall, we so often use our tongues for evil, for slander, for hurt, for idolatry. And so James is writing to expose the tongue for what it is. He writes to reveal the corrupt nature of the tongue, that we all might recognize the problem that we have and do something about it. It's also likely that James writes because the sins of the tongue were likely prevalent among his original audience. Remember back in chapter 2, we learned how partiality, the sin of partiality was a a significant problem among these early Jewish Christians. 
They were showing favor to the rich man when he entered the church, but they were disrespecting and discouraging the poor man. And such partiality has no place in the church, only leads to division and strife. We learned that lesson. And it, it almost goes without saying, but almost certainly when there's such a sin of partiality, it's going to be accompanied by sins of the tongue. Partiality accompanied by stinging words, you know, almost certainly. I mean, imagine walking into a new church. People start coming up to you and they start poking you with sewing needles. It's not like you're going to die, but it hurts and you may call the cops or you certainly would never go there again. But in a manner of speaking, that, that's what was happening to these poor brethren in the churches. They show up and it's like they're being verbally assaulted with daggers of the tongue, like ridicule, gossip, name calling. You know, down in chapter 3, 9, James says, we use our tongue to bless God, yet also to curse men. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. It's just a huge inconsistency, even in the lives of Christians. And it's only going to tear the body of Christ apart. It was going on back then. It still goes on today. And so although this may be an uncomfortable subject, we can be thankful that James includes it by his inspired pen. For the sins of the tongue need to be exposed. They often go unnoticed. They escape our mouth unnoticed. Even habits of unrighteous speech can go on for years unrecognized. But it's a mercy of God when our sins are exposed that they might be cut off. And James is going to do that this morning. He might wound us with this passage to convict us. That's a wound meant to heal someone, not to harm someone. Like the surgeon's scalpel, it cuts us open that it might reveal the cancer inside, that it might be removed. So don't close yourself off to what he has to say. I can already tell you, you have sinful areas of speech because he says we all do. And so don't think that this teaching doesn't apply to you, that you can get out of this. You can't, nor can I. If you remember, James began this section with a warning to those like himself, to teachers, those who, as teachers, wield the tongue more often with greater influence, with higher stakes. They need to be extra careful what they say when they're speaking the word of God to others. But then he says this, remember back from verse 2, he says after that, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, He's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And here's where James transitions from teachers to all of us. And the fact is that after the fall, none of us are perfect in speech or even close. We all stumble in many ways, and speech is one of those ways. In fact, it's probably safe to say speech is the biggest of those ways that we we stumble. You just can't tame the tongue, which means you and I have work to do. Here we are seeking to continually grow in Christ's image. Well, we still got a ways to go. There's going to be areas of our speech that require further repentance and renewal. And so just embrace that. There's good news that God knows our sin. He sent his son to die for it, to redeem us, to make us new, to give us new hearts. And he gives us the power now to use our tongues for praise and not poison. His word offers hope 
and help for us to grow more into Christ's image. And that includes our speech. And so what we're going to find from James, it's not condemnation, but it is conviction. And it's meant to lead to change. And so I hope that's the fruit or the takeaway from what we learned this morning. James 3, 1 through 12 is the text. But this morning, we'll just focus on verses 3 through 8. And let's begin by just reading that now. James 3, carrying on verses 3 through 8. Let's read that along. He says next in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So again, we know James is not here talking literally about the organ in your mouth of the tongue. He's talking about the power of speech. Still, though, we'll run with his imagery and and from this text find three revelations of the tongue's wickedness that we might see our sin and turn from it. Three revelations of the tongue's wickedness. I mean, just, just think, when was the last time you stopped and you really put some thought into your life and evaluated your speech, how you use your tongue. These issues most often go unnoticed and unrecognized. And so we need to do this work of spiritual weeding that the garden of our lives might grow and flourish. And James is going to help by exposing the nature of the weeds for us. And so we're going to find three revelations of the tongue's wickedness that you might see your sin and remove it. First, the power of the tongue, the power of the tongue. James begins this expose and the corruption of the tongue in verses three through five by just showing how powerful it is. And he's going to give three really simple examples. They all have the same point, how something so small can be so powerful. It's amazing how something so small can be used to control something so large. And the tongue likewise has a power disproportionate to its size. And so he begins with an equestrian example, back at verse 3. He says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. I think I've settled that horses are my favorite animal. I think I'm okay with that. You know, growing up in Burbank, we would often eat at a Mexican restaurant right near the equestrian center, and we'd watch all the horses go by while you eat, and they're just majestic animals, where God himself extols the magnificence of the horse in Job 39. You read it for yourself. 
You know, physically, horses are superior to humans in just about every respect. They're larger, faster, stronger. Their top speed's about 30 miles an hour. They can run a two-minute mile. They can carry 250 pounds, no problem. And a draft horse can pull a 400-pound load eight hours a day. But we are smarter. And humans learned long ago that by inserting a little bit into the horse's mouth, you attach that to a bridle and reins, that you can effectively control them. By pulling on the reins, their head is moved, and where their head goes, their body follows. And so in that way, we can effectively direct horses according to our will. And so I remember sitting there at that Mexican restaurant, we'd see these majestic 1,200-pound horses walk by, yet they're being completely controlled by a little 80-pound girl. This is what a bit can do. Thanks to the bit and bridle, we can direct horses to plow a field, corral a herd, pull a carriage. We can make them weapons of war, vehicles for police, battering rams for jousting. Some use horses to race or to jump or to play polo. You know, all these uses of the horse and more, they're all made possible by the bit. That tiny little piece of metal inserted into their mouth with such a small instrument, we can completely control and direct the majestic horse. And the same principle applies for the second example. Verse 4, he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. And a rudder, as you know, it's a small wedge placed in the water in the back of the boat to steer, to direct the boat. And relative to the ship's size, the rudder is extremely small. Yet ships would be largely worth, worthless without it. They'd be at the will of the wind if it weren't for the rudder. And even back in James's day in the first century, they had some surprisingly large ships. Don't forget the transport barge that the Apostle Paul was shipwrecked on could carry 276 passengers. It's pretty big back then, but that would be worthless without the rudder. And today, this example of a huge ship being directed by a tiny little rudder, it only resonates more because we have some big ships. Think of the Symphony of the Seas. It's the largest cruise ship ever built, at least for now. 1,200 feet long, 240 feet tall. That's 18 stories. It can carry almost 9,000 people. It's a floating city. But the whole thing is steered and guided by a a relatively small piece, the rudder. So all of these examples, ancient and modern, they serve the same purpose. He's showing how something so small, be it a bit or a rudder, can completely control something so large, like a horse or a ship. And it's this ability to control that makes the bit and the rudder so powerful. You should already tell where James is going with this. He's going to now draw an analogy to the tongue. And so verse 5, he says, So also the tongue, it's a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. You know, take a person who weighs 150 pounds, that's about 70 kilograms. The tongue weighs about 70 grams. And so 
The tongue represents one one thousandths of the mass of a human. But as you know, the, the power of the tongue is much greater than its size. And that's because its power comes not from its size, but its ability to control and to direct and to influence. The tongue may be a small part of the body, but it, he says it can boast of great things. As I mentioned last week, you could argue that the world has changed more through the tongue, through the power of human speech, than through the sword, than through might. By the power of speech, an entire nation can be motivated to work together to put a man on the moon. But also, according to the power of speech, an entire nation can be deceived and led astray and, and led to, to kill others. It's along these lines, James gives a third example from the horse to the ship. Now, middle of verse five, he says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. We're no strangers to forest fires, but the thing about great fires, though, is they all start the same way with a tiny spark. You can think of the largest fire ever. And it could have begun with nothing more than a candle's flame. That's power. And such is the destructive ability of fire to reproduce itself and spread its wrath. So long as oxygen and fuel are present, there's no limit to fire's power. And so it goes with the tongue. In 1871, it said that a cow accidentally kicked over a lamp, a lantern rather, and it set fire to some hay and then to the barn. And that fire spread and turned into the great Chicago fire. It burned 3.3 square miles of Chicago, killed 300 people, and left 100,000 people homeless. It just takes a a small flame to result in widespread destruction. Of late, there's a guy in Arizona who wanted to do a special gender reveal for the baby they're going to have. So he wanted to shoot a target that would explode either blue or pink based on the gender. And so he did it, shot the target, it exploded, also sparked a little fire, and that turned into a 47,000 acre fire with a big fine. It just takes one little spark, even from you know, good intentions, to leave a wake of destruction. I think you get the point. From James's perspective, fire is just a perfect analogy for the tongue. Something so small can wield so much power, can turn into something so big and destructive. In fact, fire is doubly pertinent as an illustration of the tongue because it not only highlights the tongue's power, but also the tongue's destructive ability. And so it's along these lines that James transitions now to a second revelation of the tongue's wickedness. Number two, the danger of the tongue. From the raw power of the tongue to, secondly, the danger of the tongue. The power of the tongue is not necessarily bad, right? The bit in the horse's mouth, that can be used for good to direct a horse to plow a field. Or the rudder on a ship, that can be used to steer a ship to safe harbor in a storm. 
So the power is not necessarily bad. It's just that we tend to use our tongues for bad, for evil. We find here that the tongue is corrupt and it's defiled. And so therefore the great control, the great power it has, it's most often used not for good, but for evil. And so James says outright in the middle of verse six, or uh, just in verse six, he says, the tongue is a fire. It's not, it's not like a fire now. He just says the tongue is a fire. The tongue like fire is small, but powerful. The tongue like fire is destructive, able to spread and hurt those around it. The tongue like fire can be used for good, an engine of progress, but the tongue like fire can be used for evil, leaving a wake of ruin in the lives it touches. The tongue like fire can leave spiritual third degree burns that may never heal. Some of you may still have wounds of the tongue from 10 years ago that you still think about. This is not just the power of the tongue, but the danger of the tongue. You know, kids say, sticks and stones, they break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's got to be like the least true saying ever, right? Like, who made up that? Sticks and stones are nothing compared to fire. Words can burn. And don't fool yourself. We've all been on the receiving side of that, but we've all been on the giving side of that too. And from here, James goes to show three ways the tongue is so dangerous. Here are three ways the tongue is so dangerous. First, the tongue is dangerous by representation. By representation. He says in verse 6, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Now, this is admittedly a difficult phrase to translate and interpret in the Greek, but it seems James is referring to the tongue as the embodiment of all the evil in the world in our lives. You might say that some sins belong to the eyes, like lust, and some sins belong to the hands, like theft. But you could say that the whole world of sin can find expression through the tongue. The tongue contains and communicates all the wickedness of our evil world system. So the tongue is dangerous by what it represents, namely the world of sin. Every sin in the book can essentially come to life through the tongue one way or another. So when you think about that, that's, that's pretty dangerous. Secondly, the tongue is dangerous by reach, by reach. He continues in verse 6 and says, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And being privy to every sin in the book, the tongue is that which can defile the entire body. If you had a large glass of water, even a gallon of water, it would just take the smallest scoop of manure to defile the whole thing. You wouldn't touch it. And likewise, the tongue, it's it's so small, but it can defile our entire body. And again, James, he's not talking about the literal tongue or even the literal body here. He's saying how the power of speech can defile our lives and wreak havoc on the course of our life. He adds, the tongue 
sets on fire the course of our life, the whole wheel of human existence, the ups and downs, the various stages of life, they all can be set on fire by the tongue, by by speech. With the tongue, the toddler can scream in a fit of selfish anger. With the tongue, the child can lie and manipulate to get her way. With the tongue, the teenager can spew words of hatred toward his parents. With the tongue, the young adult can gossip and fuel the rumor mill. With the tongue, the spouse can harshly criticize the other. With the tongue, the parent can verbally abuse and exasperate the children. And with the tongue, the elderly can grumble and complain against the Lord about getting old. And so you see, there's no stage of life. There's no age, there's no gender, there's no culture, there's no class that is free from the fire of the tongue. This fire just spreads everywhere and defiles everything it touches. And so are your eyes being opened to the power and the danger of the tongue? Do the sins of the tongue seem larger to you now? I hope they do. Like a serpent, the tongue often slithers unnoticed. Its sins often go unrecognized, but we need to see it for what it is. We need these reminders and admonitions about an enemy that is dwelling within. And like a serpent, the tongue often comes with fangs that release a deadly poison that hurt others. But more often than not, it hurts us too. We poison ourselves with the tongue. It's fitting to think of the tongue like a serpent because the sins of the tongue, they're actually connected to the serpent of old, Satan. And so accordingly, the third danger of the tongue, it's dangerous by root, dangerous by representation, dangerous by reach, dangerous by root. Look at the end of verse six. There's just verse six again. He says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And then he says, and is set on fire by hell. The word for hell is Gehenna in the Greek. This word Gehenna was originally used of a place. It's a valley southwest of Jerusalem. And long ago, the Canaanites used this valley to perform child sacrifice in worship of the god Molech. And tragically, the Israelites later joined them in that practice. But King Josiah put a stop to that. And ever since, that valley was considered unclean. It was unfit for settlement. And so it was turned into a place of refuse. The valley of Hinnom became a garbage heap for all of the, the waste, the, the refuse, the trash, the animal corpses from Jerusalem. They'll be piled up there and burned. And so by the day of Jesus, Gehenna was known as a festering wasteland of death and decay whose fire never went out. And so with that in mind, it it says a lot that Jesus himself used Gehenna to picture and symbolize hell, the very real place of hell. Jesus himself described hell as an unquenchable fire, a place of eternal punishment. His words. In James 
following his brother, is the only other author who uses Gehenna to symbolize hell. Only here he connects the fires of Gehenna to the tongue. The tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. Our sinful speech is like a, our sinful speech is like a defiling putrid fire spawned by hell. And such speech is only fit for that place of punishment. There's a further connection, though, between speech and hell. Because Jesus also taught that the eternal fire of hell was originally prepared for Satan and demons. Matthew 25, 41. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's the number one prisoner. And he is punished there for what? Largely for sins of the tongue. As we learned last week, Satan deceived and killed the whole human race with the tongue. He's the originator of rebellious, deceptive, destructive speech used to serve self and oppose God. He's the father of lies. And God knows how powerful and dangerous the tongue is. And so he will judge accordingly. He will judge. But learn from Satan the implicit lesson that the same fate will belong to all or befall all who wield the tongue like him. It's getting pretty serious, right? I mean, the heat is turning up on your sinful speech and mine because James says we all stumble in many ways. But it only gets worse because we find next that that this powerful, dangerous tongue cannot be tamed. It's like a fire, but not just a fire, an uncontrollable fire, a fire of which you can never get 100% containment. It's always liable to break out. So we find that the tongue is not just powerful and not just dangerous, but also a constant liability. And this is the third revelation of the tongue's wickedness, the liability of the tongue. The liability of the tongue. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's an amazing fact that just about every animal you can think of has been tamed or controlled. If you go to the circus, you'll see horses and elephants and lions and tigers running around in a circle and jumping through hoops at the command of the ringmaster. You go to the zoo, you'll see pigeons and hawks and owls and falcons flying around, snatching a dollar out of someone's hand at the command of the keeper. And you go to SeaWorld, you'll see seals and walruses, dolphins, and even killer whales, at least for now, doing flips and tricks at the blow of a whistle. And there are some dogs who obey better than children, right? Let's, let's face it. The man in his great intelligence has been able to exert control and dominion over all the creatures of the earth. But for all his knowledge, man still cannot tame the tongue. And people still can't master their own speech for all of our intelligence and and greatness as a species. The tongue can't be tamed. It cannot be fully brought in line. Part of it 
This remains wild. Not too long ago, a South African farmer found an abandoned wild hippo and took it to raise as his pet. And hippos can be domesticated to a degree, but usually when they're born in captivity, this was a young wild hippo. So he raised it. It was fine at first, but later it turned on him, mauled him, drowned him. And part of that hippo was still wild and just waiting to come out. And that's like the tongue. It it just can't be tamed. At times, you might feel like you got it under control. Like, I got this. I'm I'm doing pretty good. You might think you have your tongue in check, but it's, it's still wild. And it's liable to turn on you at any time. It's liable to, to betray you, to lash out, to hurt others, to hurt yourself. That's what James mean when, means when he says the tongue is a restless evil. The word restless means unstable, unreliable, fickle. It's just prone to break out. It's a caged animal just looking for an opportunity and if that door is left open, it's, it's coming out. And when it comes out, it's usually not for good. And so he says it's a restless evil. And so often we use our tongues to hurt others. He says the tongue is full of deadly poison. Again, perhaps evoking the image of a serpent with poison that hurts others and, and ourselves. And so you put this together, what have we learned? We've learned that the tongue is a powerful, dangerous liability. It's liable to lash out, hurt others, slander God, ruin our own lives. And though it's small, it can do great damage. It can lay waste like a forest fire. It can never be fully tamed or contained. It's even set on fire by hell. What James says in these verses, it's, it's simple yet powerful, the speech, the images he used. It's, it's also rather straightforward. So the question we're left with now going through these verses is, you know, what are we supposed to do with this teaching? With all he says here, like, what do we do with this? James lays the tongue's wickedness on heavy because he wants us to see the enemy within. Within our own members is profound danger. You need to see the ability of of your speech to bring about great ruin in your own life. And you need to come to terms with the wicked speech in your own life. But there's still a tension. You know, it's clear from this passage, we had better control the tongue and not let the tongue control us. Otherwise, it's going to ruin your life. But we're told you can't. We can't fully control the tongue. We can't tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. We're not the perfect man. We all stumble in many ways. And so there's this tension between what ought to be and and what, what is. We must not use our speech like Satan for evil, but for good. But we, we, we fail. We, we don't do that. And so we ask again, like, what are we supposed to do with this teaching? So let me try and help flesh out for you what would be the appropriate response to what James is telling us. The step one would be to see the sins of your tongue. To see the sins of your tongue. You need to truly recognize the many ways you use your tongue for wickedness. The list of sinful speech in scripture is long. And so you just listen. Which of these characterize you? Gossip, 
flattery, harsh criticism, meanness, sarcasm, coarse humor, boasting, blasphemy, lying, arrogance, false rumors, malicious words, sensual speech, slander, swearing, false vows, mocking, complaining, false witness, rash speech. The list goes on. It's a long list. The tongue is a big fire. And so step one is to swallow your medicine and just own up to the fact you've got one of these things. You've got a tongue and it, it goes off. It sins. You sin with your tongue. So step one, see the sins of your tongue. Okay, I think we get that. Unless you're really hardened in sin, it doesn't take that much to convict us that, okay, we, we get it. We all blow it in our speech. But what do we do next? What do we do about that? You might think, as bad as the tongue is, we just cut it off and throw it away. And some crazy zealots have actually done that in church history. But we've said several times, James, he's not talking about your physical tongue. Right? He's, your problem is not your physical tongue. And listen now, your problem is not even your speech. Your real problem is not even your speech. What you need to do next is recognize where does your sinful speech come from? And the answer is not your mouth, but your heart. Your heart. And James supports this. You know, back to his analogies in verses 3 through 4. You know, that little bit in the horse's mouth, that controls the horse, right? Wrong. The bit is just the tool. What controls the bit? That's what controls the horse. And the answer is the rider. He says, we put the bit in their mouth, and we, the rider, we direct their entire body. And likewise, the rider on a ship, the rider controls the ship, right? Wrong. The rider is just the tool. And the real question is, who controls the rudder? And and James says, it's the pilot. And he moves it according to his desire. And so you see, there's a third party in this equation. Our tongues powerful and dangerous, but they are merely the instrument of our sin. The question is, where does all that sin really come from though? And the answer the Bible would give is the heart. The heart is the one in the driver's seat using our tongues for evil. And so James says down in verse nine, we'll see next week, we use our tongues to bless God, yet we also use our tongues to curse others. And so you see the tongue is it's merely the tool, the instrument of our wickedness. The kicker though, is that your tongue is a window to your heart and it reveals what's in there. The tongue reveals the nature of the one using it. And so as we use our tongues for evil, what does that say about our hearts? It says they're evil too. It says there's still some evil in there. Christ himself said the same thing, by the way, Matthew 15, 18, and 19. He said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the men. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And so look, our speech problem is meant to reveal our heart problem, our heart's are desperately sick. Our hearts are full of evil. That's the real problem. And so step two is just to recognize that. Step two is to recognize 
that all of our sinful speech merely reveals a fallen, wicked, rebellious heart behind it. And that ours is a spiritual problem. It's not really a speech problem. It's a spiritual heart problem. I hope you get that. So now what next? What can we do about that? And the answer is nothing. Step three is nothing. To realize you can do nothing about that. Step three is where you come to the end of yourself and your resources. And in humility, you recognize your heart is hopelessly wicked and you can't change it on your own. You don't have the power to perform spiritual heart surgery on yourself. This is just nothing, or this is rather something you just can't do. You don't have the ability to change your own heart before Christ. But this is where the good news comes in because God can. He can change us. James does not resolve this tension here in chapter 3. He does that in chapter 4. But by way of preview, the solution is grace. God's grace, which can transform us. And so he says later, God gives greater grace. So you need to draw near to God through Christ. Step four then is to turn to Christ for mercy, for grace, for transforming grace. God promises this grace to all those who humble themselves over their sins and repent and just run to Jesus. Look, you know, with all this teaching on the tongue this morning, I'm going to imagine that some of you this whole time, you've been thinking of someone else. You've been thinking of that, uh, a lot of laughter there, I guess I was right. You've been thinking of that other person who uses their tongue to hurt you, to offend you, to criticize you. And just right now, don't do that. Just think about yourself. Because you have a tongue too. And you have used your speech for sin. You have stumbled before God. And perhaps some of you here have made a profession of Christ back in the day, but as you reflect on your life, you find nothing redeeming about your speech. Just nothing ungodly, impure, unrepentant speech comes out. And speech being a window to the heart, is that perhaps saying you've never been born again and transformed by the grace of God? Remember, that's why James writes, he's writing to give us these tests of true faith, living faith versus dead faith. And if there's nothing redeeming about your speech at all, then do you have a living faith? I tell you what, though, either way, the right response is just to turn to Christ. He's the only one who can forgive your sins. Think of all your sins of speech. He's the only one who can forgive all of them. And he's the only one who can give you this new heart that can be different. Only by this transforming grace can your tongue come to bear fruit and be used for for prayer, for praise, for worship, for edification. This was God's design for our tongues. But you have to receive newness of life first. And so you must turn to Christ. And it's such a powerful picture of what God must do for all of us in salvation, to give us a new tongue and a new heart. A powerful picture in Isaiah 6. You don't have to turn there. You can listen. You know, the prophet Isaiah is given a a vision of the throne room of God. And he sees God in his glory on the throne. There's not a hint of unrighteousness. 
in this God. And you remember Isaiah's response. He sees this vision. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting how Isaiah points to his lips, his mouth, his speech. But you see, that's where the difference between us and this God is most pronounced. Here is this perfect God who was perfectly holy. He's surrounded by beings who have tongues, but they use their tongues to only say, holy, holy, holy. But in contrast to that, you've got Isaiah and his people, and they're just so wicked and so sinful. They don't belong in this God's presence, and it's, it's evidenced most by their speech. This was Isaiah's humble recognition of his sin. But then, it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. This is such a, a perfect picture of the atonement where your sins are forgiven. Your uncleanness is made clean. And we know this atonement was fulfilled in Christ through his death and resurrection. And so the ultimate response is for us or for us is to, like Isaiah, just see our sins. And to call out to God to make us clean, to touch our lips, to give us a new heart. He can and he will through faith in Christ. And so let this be your ultimate response when you're confronted with your sin, especially those of the tongue. The response is not to hide, to deny, to blame shift, to justify yourself. The response is to just own up and turn to Christ. For he's our only hope. Only Christ can make you new and then enable you to use your tongue for God's glory. Indeed, after this, God commissioned Isaiah to be God's tongue. God, after cleansing him, God was going to use Isaiah as his mouthpiece to use his speech for God's purposes now. And that's, that's our mission too. For those who come to Christ, you receive a new heart. You get a new tongue which can be used for God's glory. And let's do that. Let's let, let that be our response. There's still more to come because there's still a bit of unresolved tension here. Because even after you do this, even after you come to Christ by faith for salvation, we still can't tame the tongue. And we live with a measure of inconsistency. As James says next, two believers sometimes we use our tongue now to bless God, but there are times we still use our tongue to curse others. It should not be this way, but it is. And so we need to understand that and learn how we can, can fight and, and now reform our speech by God's grace and grow in the right use of our speech. We're going to do that next time. But for now, let's already resolve to use our tongues for God. Be purified in Christ and just resolve to use your speech for him, for thanksgiving, for prayer, for praise, for encouragement. You be God's mouthpiece now as you come to Christ, singing his praise, 
declaring his goodness and telling others of his son. In the words of Hebrews 13:15, it says, "Through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Let that be our sacrifice, our response, the fruit of our lips in praise to God who saved us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of Christ, the Savior, the one who can redeem us and restore us. It's easy conviction when we talk about sins of the, of the tongue, for we are all guilty. And I pray we all in humility just recognize we have sinned before God, before others. It's so easy for us to think about how others have hurt us, and, and that may be the case, but we have our fair share of blame, Lord. And I pray we receive your mercy and, and, and the spotlight being shown on our sin. That's a good thing. For it can be healed. You've sent Christ to die for our sin, to forgive us, to touch our lips and our hearts, to, clean, to cleanse us. And we desperately need that, Lord. And I pray for any who has not received that cleansing touch, that they humble themselves and turn to Christ now and believe. And for us who have, Lord, you've, you've given us new hearts and tongues. I pray we use them for your glory. The battle rages on. We'll, we'll learn more about that, Lord. But I pray for now we just make it our heart's desire. We want to use our speech for you, for good and for glory. So empower us to do that. And may we praise you with our lips and our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.